I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse, starting in verse 22. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We ask you to anoint this word. It's, it's totally worthless if you don't anoint it, Father. So we thank you and praise you for your anointing. We thank you for your family structure. We thank you for your, for your principles. We thank you for, for, your, for your way of, of doing things that you showed us that we need to do. And we just ask you, Lord, to, to help us to learn what we need to learn uh, today. And we just uh, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand for the reading of the word, we're starting in verse 22. This is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Hallelujah. I have it highlighted here. If you Anyway. <laughs> That's the only verse in the whole Bible that every man in the church knows that verse. They don't know any others, but they know that one. Hallelujah. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ... So let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, and that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, and he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and his flesh and his bones. For this reason the man shall leave the father and mother and be joined to the wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you, in particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she honors her husband. And children, obey your parents in the Lord, for that is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of the word you may be seated. So this is the structure of the family unit. And it won't work without Jesus. You can't be father, you can't be a father. So I, this is my testimony. You can't be a father the way God calls you to be a father. You can't be a husband the way God calls you to be a husband until your life becomes reconciled to your heavenly father. It's only after you've gone through that process that you even begin to understand what being a father is all about. I was, uh, by Christian standards, by, by the world standards, I guess I was a good father. I was hardworking, good provider, you know, all those kinds of things. But I was a terrible failure as a father in the eyes of God and what he intended for a father to be because I didn't understand what that was until he became my heavenly father. When he became my heavenly father, I began to see my children with a whole new light and I was grieved because I had wasted so much time and I had been so much not what they needed. You see, men have this other thing that we do. We communicate work with love. 
Does your wife know that you love her? Yeah. How does she know? Because I work all the time. That's not the way it works. That doesn't communicate love to a woman. And so, and so I had to learn how. And I had to learn the power that a father has for, for good, that he can be for good in his children's life. There's three things that, that the Bible teaches us that a father has to do. Number one is the father imparts identity and blessing to his children. In the last thing Israel did, the last thing Jacob did in the Old Testament, on his deathbed, he was on his deathbed, and he called his sons to him. And he began to bless them. In Genesis 49, 27, for example, he took Benjamin and he said, Benjamin, you are a ravenous wolf. In the morning you shall devour your prey, and at night you shall divide your spoil. And whatever he spoke over, each one of them became their life experiences. I'm telling you, man, listen to me. Whatever you speak over your children can, will become their life experience. I was at a Reese's. Reese Morris's graduation dinner at that steakhouse in Lubbock, whose name I can never remember, but it's a great place to get a steak. That's not important. But, <clears throat> yeah. And I will never forget, there was a big, had a big long table. There was a lot of us in there, 20 or 25 people, family, friends and all. And, and at some point during the, uh, during the dinner, Roger stood up in front of all of the people and he proposed a toast, but we were drinking iced tea. You can tell we're Protestants. We're having a toast with iced tea. Hallelujah. We make it, put it in a wine glass and make it look good anyhow, sometimes. But anyway, it's still iced tea. But he said, he said about Reese, he said, Reese is an overcomer. And then he told a story that I don't even remember. I don't remember the story. See, the story's not important. The story was he stood up before everybody. He stood up, so check this out. He stood up before the tribe and he declared, my son is an overcomer. And that has been his personality. That's what he is. That's what he's done. He's taken on that personality of being an overcomer. And I just, I was struck. I was struck by the power of that statement when Roger just stood up there and just said it out loud in front of everybody. Do you know how many men, young boys grow up, and they have never had a father figure stand before the rest of the tribe and say, he is a man? That's what's wrong with America. That's what's wrong with America. In Genesis chapter 49, 28, it says, uh, and all these 12 tribes of Israel, this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them, and he blessed each one according to his own blessing. That became not only their identity, and then he died. He was on his deathbed. It was the last thing, his dying act. And, and, and so there was a, a powerful spiritual moment. And that not only became their identity, it became their son's identity and their grandson's identity, and the tribes became known for the things that Jacob spoke to them in Genesis chapter 49 throughout history. Throughout history, you can affect your generations if you speak into their life. It's fascinating. If you study the history of the tribes, you go back to Genesis 49, they became what he proclaimed, what Israel became, proclaimed on that day. We got a lost generation. What have they lost? Their identity. They don't know who they are. Come on, somebody. They're fatherless. They don't know who they are because they've never had their father stand up before and stand them before the, the tribe and say, this is who this boy is. 
They suffer from acute gender confusion is what they call it. <laughs> only a father, men, only a father can impart the masculine heart. A woman can't do it. She can try. She, a grandmother can't do it. Only a man can stand up and declare over his sons, this boy has what it takes. He's a man. Only a man can do that. Only a father can do that. And these young men are so hungry for fathers, they'll find them in a lot of places. If you study the social structure of a gang in prison, it's built around the family model. There is someone in there who is the leader, and these young men look up to him, and he, and he speaks over them. And he, and, and he becomes sort of a perverted father in a sense in their life because they're so hungry for it. You know, they say whenever Mother's Day, Mother's Day in prison, they have thousands of cards, Mother's Day's cards go out, out of the prison. On Father's Day, you can carry them around in a bucket. Our prisons are full of anger, angry young men that have been hurt by their natural fathers. If you believe that, say amen. It's one of the most powerful things that I've ever seen. And look at the blessing of Isaac, and this is the part that I think is fascinating too. In Genesis chapter 27, verse 33 and 35, you remember Jacob tricked his father into blessing him instead of Esau. He was going to bless Esau because they were twins, but Esau came out first, and that was their culture. The, the firstborn is the one that gets the blessing. And so, you know, all the extent that Jacob went to to trick his dad, his dad was, Isaac was getting blind and he couldn't see. And anyway, it says, and then so whenever Esau figured out that he had been tricked, he went to his dad. And then Isaac trembled exceedingly. He said, he said, he said, who and where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? This was Jacob. And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. And indeed, he shall be blessed. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And he said to his father, bless me. Bless me also, O my father. And this is what, this is, a, this is amazing. But, but, but Isaac said, your brother came with deceit. And he's taken away your blessing. It's irrevocable. When you speak it, it's irrevocable. Good and bad. That's the power of a father's blessing. When you release that blessing, you can't say, oh, well, I just thought about it. I'm going to take it back. He didn't mow the grass. I told him to mow the grass. He didn't mow the grass. I'm taking that blessing back. It doesn't work that way. When you speak the blessing spiritually, it's released, and it's irrevocable. I think that's absolutely unbelievable. Proverbs 20, 18, 21 says that the power of life and death is in our tongue. Watch your language over your children. Watch what you say to them. Even when they do stupid things, don't call them stupid. Here's a recommendation. You can say, that wasn't very smart, and you are a whole lot smarter than that. That's how you can correct them positively. Father's blessing, the first thing they do is they speak life, and they speak identity, and they speak blessing into their children. And you know, uh, I heard a guy say, Ben Watson, <coughs> it was on a Fox News interview, and he said he's a football player, if you don't know who he is, and he does a lot of work in this area. And he said, he said about children, he said, their father will be their first hero for a son and be the first man that a daughter falls in love with. In other words, what he's saying is, the, the, the girl will use the father as a model for what she's looking for in a man. Be the right kind of model, somebody. Come on, somebody. Be the right kind of model. Because that's the kind of man that she's going to want to marry. A father teaches his children the teachings of Jesus and he lives by them. You didn't, you didn't, you don't, don't leave out the last part. The father teaches his children the teachings of Jesus and he lives by them. Our children are pretty keen observers, aren't they? Have you noticed that? 
They don't pay a lot of attention to what we say, but they watch what we do. Amen? And they have a tendency to react the way we react to things, but they watch and observe. I don't, you can tell them not to cuss when a cow kicks them, but I guarantee if you did it, they're going to. Can I get a witness out of somebody? I know that firsthand. My daughter has got a T-shirt that says, I'm a Christian, but I still cuss at cows. Isn't that what it says? Oh, I see. Okay. All right. She's somewhere. They're going to do what you do. But you can turn that into a positive thing. Obed-Edom is a great example. I love to, to, to study his life out of the Old Testament. Because David, you know, remember the story? David was going to move the ark into the temple, and he went and he got an ox cart, and he just going to haul it on an ox cart. But that was not the way that the, the ark is supposed to be moved. And the word says that David failed to consult the proper order. The order was the ark was the presence of God, and it was to be carried on the backs of the priest. Not on some man-made instrument. Churches need to figure that out. They need to quit trying to usher in the presence of God in some man-made vehicle and, and understand it's the anointing of the priest that brings in. Can I get a witness out of somebody? It's the anointing of the priest. That, and you can't duplicate that. God will not honor that. You can't come up with a system or a program or a function or a thing you do or whatever. You can't do any of that. What The only way you can bring the anointing is to have the anointing yourself and to go spill it out on the church. That's the way that works. Amen? And, so, and so, so he tried to move that, that ark, and so they put it on the ox cart, and, you know, the ox slipped, and, that, and, that, and the ark was about to, to come off, and, 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 and a young man reached up and touched it to, to steady it, and God killed him. He killed him right there. I think God's serious about how he wants his presence handled. Amen? Come on, somebody. And so, and so what happened was they go, oh, they stopped everything. What are we going to do now? Well, I ain't touching that, that box on that card, I can tell you that. And they took it into Obed-Edom's place. And Obed-Edom, it says, was a Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And he was a Gittite. What does that mean? That means that he was actually a Philistine. He was not even a Jew. He was not even in covenant. He was a, and, but, but the reason, and God blessed him for three months. Why did God bless him? Because he reverenced the presence of God. He just saw a guy get killed out the window because he had no respect for the presence of God. It was just trying to handle it in a common way. And when he got that thing in his house, he said, okay, I'll keep it, but I'm tell you what we're going to do. We're going to pray 24-7 around here. Hallelujah. We're not coming in here with our hat and all, you know, on our head. We're going to come in with our hat in our hand. We're going to kneel down. We're going to pray. We're not even going to enter this room unless we have a, a reverence and a respect and a fear for the presence. And he began to teach his kids that. His kids watched what he did. You know, in 2 Samuel 15, 18, it says about, it says, at the coronation, it said all his servants passed before him. It was at David's coronation. He said all the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and the Gittites, there were 600 men that had followed from Gath. That's in the Philistines. They passed before him. And this is just kind of interesting information. You might know that these were his personal guard. David is a smart dude. He took his personal guard. These guys, when he was living at Ziklag, they began to join him down there. They were from, they were Philistines, and they fought. They fought together on the battlefield, and they were good fighters, number one. Number two, they weren't Jews. And so there's no way that they were going to kill him and assassinate him thinking they could be the king because they could never be the king. So he made them his personal bodyguards. Amen. And they were a fierce group. 
They were a very fierce bunch. And David trusted them. He trusted them. And Obed-Edom was out of that group. And so, Obed-Edom reverenced the presence of God for three months, and God blessed him. He had, he had his, his sheep had triplets. He had crops were unproductive. He just blessed him and blessed him and blessed him. And Obed-Edom fell in love with the presence of God. And so, his children watched him and how he worshipped God. And when they came and got the ark and they took it out, they said, who's going to be the doorkeeper in the, in, the, in, the, in the inner chamber where the ark is? Let's get Obed-Edom. He seems to have this figured out. They took a Philistine. Check this out. They took a Philistine who was their natural enemy but who had learned how to enter into the presence. Come on, somebody. There's a lot of guys living out there on the streets that were addicted one time to dope, but they have learned how they got free because they learned how to enter into the presence of God and they reverence it and you won't see them at religious first national downtown but you will see them winning souls leading people to the Lord making a difference in people's lives because they have learned how to reverence the presence and God loves them because they love him and they're not trying to put on any airs what's Obed-Edom going to do try to pretend like he's a Jew he didn't do that I'm not a Jew but I love the presence of God and it says in the word that he was put as a gatekeeper over the temple area. But check this out. In the, in the coming generations, if you go follow this all the way through the book of Chronicles, in coming generations, Obed-Edom's descendants were the gatekeepers in the temple. They were the watchers over the presence of God for 50 to 60 generations. They grew up, they grew into a priest class. And they were Gentiles originally. Obed-Edom taught them how to worship God. If you go to church, fathers, and you're going to sit there with your hands down, and you're going to be worried about what somebody thinks, I'm getting on to somebody now, I know it, but I don't care. I was, that, I was like that one time. I, ain't gonna, I don't raise my hands. I get carried away. I don't want to get all emotional. If you're not going to get emotional in the presence of God, when are you going to get emotional? Can I get a witness out of somebody? Men are so scared of showing their emotions. If you get in the presence of a holy God and you can't even raise your hands to worship, what's your kid going to do? But if he sees you come before God broken, if he sees you at the altar, if he sees you thirsty for the presence of God, amen, then he's going to become or she's going to become reverent. You have to speak life into them. You have to bless them. You have to teach the teachings of Jesus, and you have to live them before them where they can see that, where they can see it. See, nobody cares how, how, nobody cares how spiritual you are when everything is going good. They want to see how do you react when everything is going south, how do you react when everything seems to be, when you seem to be getting attacked on every turn? How do they react when your wife has a cancer diagnosis and they say she ain't going to make it? How do you react? Do you lose your faith then? Do you quit going to the Lord? Do you quit standing? Do you quit speaking? Do you quit reading? Do you quit praying? Because the children know the difference, and they want to see how you react when, the, when your back is against the wall. Then, if you, then you show them the power of God in the trial. They got to learn that from the father. 
Some of them learn it from my mother. I'm not denying that. But when a father does it, it has a powerful impact. The third thing a father's got to do is he's got to love his children unconditionally. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. While it's true that a father chastens a son, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as the father and the son in whom he, he delights, the Lord chastens the son. The worst thing, there's two things you can do. There's two things you can do that are big mistakes as a father. Turn them loose and let them go and not even, and not even pay any attention to them. A child psychologist, I was listening to her on the radio I got a new pickup. I got serious radio. Carol hadn't gotten a bill yet, so I'm probably going to have it for another 30 days, and then it'll be gone. So I'm going to try to listen to everything I can listen to. <laughs> but they have a family station on serious radio, and and uh, they have some really good teaching on there. And there was a they have a, a focus on the family has an hour long thing they do there. I, I forgot how much I love that program, and I hadn't listened to it in a long time. And they had a child psychologist on there. You know, they're all about family. And she was really smart, you know, for a psychologist. She was really smart. And because I agreed with everything she said, that's why I know she was really smart. Amen? So, so anyway, so she said that for a child, with the love of the mother is a given. See, mother's got to love me. But the love of the father is always on the line. It's always subject to revocation. This is what the child feels. And a lot of times, a child will get rebellious to test for unconditional love. In other words, they really want to see, will the father disown me if I do this? They're not secure in their father's, the father's love for them. They're not secure in their relationship with the father. So they continue to do and act out and do things to get in trouble because they're trying to measure the father's response. Now, she said the father needs to discipline them, but he needs to always tell them, I love you anyhow. I'm not going to revoke my love because you have done this thing, but you did wrong, and you need to know that you did wrong, and he can punish them. And if you do nothing, so there's two mistakes. One is to just do nothing and pay no attention. They go, I told you. He doesn't really love me. I can't even get him a response when I do something crazy. He doesn't even respond. So that's, that's not a good response. And the other one is, is to overcorrect and withdraw your love and say, you kid, you're an idiot, troublemaker. I haven't got time for you. See, that's the other. Those are the two things you can't do. She said, a father who speaks truth in love, who speaks truth in love, I'm not saying let them off the hook. I'm saying to you, you sit down with them and say, I love you and I believe that you know better than that, but this is something you have to do. That's the one that builds great character in a child. I thought that was really, really fascinating. Rebellion, a lot of times, is a searching for and testing of the unconditional love of a father. And if a father loves somebody, I had a great experience right here in this room during the team meeting, uh, part of the procedure is is before you share a talk, we preview our talks, and and they have the team, they have a group of of ladies that pray over you there. They're on the prayer, they call them the prayer team, and so they pray for you before you go out. And so as I came in, these three young women, women, and are just I've just learned they're just wonderful, wonderful people, and uh, and they 
they laid, they were going to pray for me, and one of them told me and said, you know, you become a father to this to this to this walk, and I said, uh, do what? And she said, she said, I tell you, you you speak the truth, but you do it in love. And she said, you say some hard things, and you've said some hard things. And then Leanne gets up and gives a testimony and says, yeah, he sent me a letter. And boy, I'll tell you what, he said some hard things. I don't remember that letter being that tough. But anyway, so maybe I do it and I'm not aware of it. But anyway, she said, but i got to tell you something. I never had a stable, strong father in my whole life. And I need what you have. I need someone that will love me unconditionally, but tell me that I've got to do something if I want to be successful. That really touched me. I got real emotional. I never thought, I don't, that's just the way I am. I don't think about that. And so they laid hands on me and prayed for me, and they said, you, you're filling a role, and in these women that are going to go on this walk, so many women don't get that. So I'm talking about the relationship between a father and a son, but it applies to a, woman, to, to a young girl as well. She needs that to speak the truth in love. But she's got to be sure about the love part. And the love is about being with somebody. It's love is about being with somebody. You can't, disciple, you can't disciple somebody or you can't discipline somebody who's, who's, who's not sure that you love them. And the way they tell is, where are you spending your time? Come on, men. You can't be spending all your time at work or at home watching a football game and not ever take them fishing and not ever go to their ball games and not ever do the things and invest in their life. The way that a child knows you love them is that you want to spend time with them. And this is even more important, and I didn't understand this for a long time, this is even more important, you have to sacrifice something to do it. When they see you sacrificing something so you can spend time with them, now that communicates real love. Amen. I remember when Mandy was growing up and she was real active in 4-H and uh, and uh, we went everywhere, didn't we? We went to horse shows, and it was hot too, wasn't it, honey? I wish 4-H could move to the winter time where it was. But anyway, and the, her last year, she was the uh, she was the high score. She scored she scored more uh, points in the roping events uh, than any girl had ever scored before in a state 4-H horse show, and she lacked she lacked one. One, one calf run where she had an illegal catch, which I didn't think was illegal, and I'm still upset about that. They need to get that in the rule books. So I was acting like her typical father. Anyhow, and she lacked that one point of being, being, uh, winning the whole all-around the, at the state 4-H horse show. If you know how many, do you know how many thousands of horses there are at the state 4-H horse show? Thousands, thousands. And so <clears throat> I, was, I, was, I was so blessed that we had taken the time to spend that time with her and to go with her to 4-H and to, and to do those things. I got a good friend of mine. He lives, doesn't live here anymore. He lives in, in uh, down in uh, Jackson, Jackson, Henrietta. Thank you. I don't know where he lives. Mandy knows. He lives in Henrietta. Anyway, he used to say that 4-H is keeping more families together than the church is. And I'm telling you, that's an indictment, but it's also correct. The church has got to get their act together and start to start to banking it about building families like the 4-H has. Anyway, 
I'm so thankful that I had that time with her, and we took the time, and it was a sacrifice to do it. But those are my greatest memories of, of her growing up, is the time we spent together at the horse shows. You can't get that back. When you lose it, you can't get it back. Amen. Show them you love them by spending time with them. If you're going to correct them, they've got to know that you love them. Jimmy Valvano, and this is going to be a short sermon because uh, i got a Father's Day steak waiting on me here in just a little bit. So, <laughs> oh, Carol can tell you, I've been like, I mean, it's been like, I mean, I'm not sure what day it is. If someone had woke me up and said, it's Sunday, you have to go preach. It's been kind of one of those kind of weeks, but. Jimmy Belvano said something I think is really cool. His greatest quote is this. The greatest thing a father can do for his children is to believe in them. The greatest thing a father can do to his children is to believe in them. Amen. My father wasn't, was pretty harsh, really. I'm just being honest. He was a pretty tough guy. Still is a pretty tough guy. But... He believed in me, and he would never, never, ever let me not believe in myself. And I look back on it now, and I realize what a gift that was, because he always told me, you can do anything you, can, you want to do. You just got to get to work. And that was kind of his motto. You want to work hard enough? There's no limit. Don't let people set limits on you. If you want to get out and work for it, and that was kind of the way we were raised. And uh, I, I look back on it, and I'm thankful for that. Most fathers are too focused on their children's shortcomings. They're too, they're too worried about, and you know what? They outgrow that over time if you just keep helping them with it and keep working with them. The greatest thing a father can do is to believe in them. But you know, the, the, the data shows, this is, this, is, this is the data, this is the statistics. If a child grows up in a family, that's low conflict, and that means it has to be rooted in Jesus. You can't have, you can't be together for 49 years, which ours is coming up July the 28th. I got all the math right and everything. I'm, I did it before I came in. I got on the calculator, figured it out. Yeah, I'm learning. After 49 years, I'm starting to learn. Don't do something like that off the cuff, man. Know your day. Know your facts. Know your facts when you come. But after 49 years, you can't stay together for 49 years and not have Jesus Christ in the center of your relationship. I believe that is, 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 is just as sure as I'm standing here. And you can't raise a family and have a low conflict. And so this is what they said. Families, children, and this is not condemning anybody, but this is just the data. Children that grow up in low conflict uh, uh, households where the, with their biological parents, both of them, have a 95% success rate in life. And I have a theory about that. You want to, you want to hear what it is? They know who they are. They, 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 they grow up in a relationship where they have discovered who they are and they have been validated by their mother and their father. Now, that doesn't mean the kids can't succeed that come out of bad relationships because they do all the time. But it's so much easier for a kid to do it when he's had a good father. I really think... Well, I can prove it. The plan of the enemy to destroy America is to destroy the church. And the way he's going to destroy the church, he can't attack the church head on. He has to destroy the families within the church. And if he can destroy the families within the church, then you grow up with a generation of kids that don't know who they are. They don't know what sex they are. 
by God, does that amaze you like it amazes me? That is the power of identity or the lack thereof. It all is about the fathers. Amen.